Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. In his new book, Hope in a Secular Age, Deconstruction, Negative Theology, and the Future of Faith, David Neuheiser argues that hope is the indispensable precondition of religious practice and secular politics. Against dogmatic complacency and despairing resignation, he argues that hope sustains commitments that remain vulnerable to disappointment. The line of thinking goes that since the discipline of hope is shared by believers and unbelievers alike, its persistence indicates that faith has a future in a secular age. Drawing on pre-modern theology and postmodern theory, Neuheiser shows that atheism and Christianity have more in common than they often acknowledge. Writing in a clear and engaging style, he develops a new reading of deconstruction and negative theology, arguing that despite their differences, they share a self-critical hope. By retrieving texts and traditions that are rarely read together, this book offers a major intervention in debates over the place of religion in public life. David Neuheiser is a research fellow in the Institute for Religion and Critical Inquiry at Australian Catholic University. His research draws on Christian thought and continental philosophy to address topics such as neoliberalism, sexuality, atheism, and the arts. He joins me today to discuss his new book. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Secularism, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Carrie Lynn Evans, and I'm joined today by David Neuheiser to talk about his book, Hope in a Secular Age, Deconstruction, Negative Theology, and the Future of Faith. David, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to start by asking you about yourself and how you came to work in your field. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so first, like a lot of people, I think I began studying what I studied to try to figure out questions that were sort of uh, pretty pretty deep within me to figure out who I was. Like a lot of people, I grew up in the States. Christianity was a big part of, of the world that I grew up in. But as I, as I went to college and as I sort of went out into the world, I realized that a lot of the, a lot of the categories that I had been given as a, as a child um, didn't fit the world as neatly as I thought. Things were more complicated than I had been told. And so I began to study religion as a way to try to fig- figure out how to put together these different pieces of myself, um, what, what to do with the religious upbringing that I've been given and how to fit that with this broader, more complicated world that I found. So my undergraduate degree was actually in philosophy, and that was where I sort of began to try to work through these, some of these big questions about uh, sort of faith and knowledge. Um, but what I discovered is that these questions in philosophy could sometimes get kind of abstracted. And towards the end of my, my bachelor's degree, I began to study more in the sort of history of religious thought. And I realized that in, in religious thought, people were asking a lot of the same questions that I cared about in philosophy, but those questions were situated in a concrete context. So in order to think about um, big questions about the self and knowledge and faith in the context of religious thought, it was necessary to, to take seriously their situation in a particular community. 
and in relation to practice, both the sort of practice of worship and prayer, but also ethical practice and political engagement. And so uh, I was drawn to the study of religion at that point, mainly because I felt like it provided a more holistic context for the sort of big philosophical questions that I, that I cared about. As I did my graduate studies, uh, I came to see that the, the themes that I was dealing with in the history of religious thought weren't just my own questions. They were, in a way, they were about how the world works. So um, I, I began my master's degree was focusing on early Christian studies, so pretty arcane, ancient texts, mostly written in Greek. But I came to see that they, uh, these texts still spoke to the world that we live in in lots of ways, that, um, that religious and political concepts have influenced each other really since the beginning. And uh, in a way that that distinction between religion and politics is somewhat artificial. So I came to see that revisiting classic religious texts and especially Christian texts is my, is my expertise um, and placing them into conversation with contemporary theory helped us help, help me to understand how our politics actually works in secular societies like the United States where I grew up or Australia where I live now. And I think it also uh, studying religious thought provided provided me with tools to try to help address political questions that are current today. Excellent. So next, maybe tell us how you came to write this particular book. Yeah. So again, I think like a lot of books, it's actually quite personal, although it might not be, it might not be obvious from the, from the cover as it were, because it's about, you know, a lot of big, important texts. But the first line of the book is I wrote this book because I find it hard to hope. And I think that's really the sort of basic experience that, that drew me to it. So like everyone, I know what it's like to feel deep disappointment. Um, my heart has been broken. Uh, and I know that it's hard to, to keep going sometimes, to hold onto desires that have been frustrated. It's painful to hope a lot of the time. And not only in my own life do I find that the sort of threat of despair is real some of the time, but I also feel the pull of complacency. So I, I feel like in myself, as in many others, I've, I've been relatively privileged. I've lived a comfortable life. I sometimes find it uh, easy to sort of slip into thinking that the way things are is sort of obvious and stable, um, which I've, I've come to see is a, another kind of hopelessness, the sort of mirror of despair. Uh, I also uh, experience this problem as political in a way. I mean, um, even though my situation is a lot more stable than many people, I'm also precariously employed, like a lot of people under finance-dominated capitalism. I, I'm an academic. It's been eight years since I got my PhD, but I'm currently on my fifth short-term contract. And I know that I know that, that uncertainty, not knowing whether I'm going to be working in a year, is difficult to handle. It's a weight. It's an anxiety uh, that sort of lingers with me all of the time. And I know a lot of people feel this in their in their lives. So... I wrote this book, I think, mainly to try to respond to that experience. I know from my own experience that it, it doesn't do any good to wave it away. I think it's important to honestly acknowledge the uncertainty that we experience and to confront the way that things are genuinely hard. But I, for myself, but also for the world, I've come to think that it's important to find a way to, to press forward, even when things are really 
fragile and uncertain to acknowledge our, our vulner, vulnerability, but to press forward anyway. So that's what brought me to the books. And this is the sort of second way of telling the story, although, I, although they're quite intimately connected. So in my graduate studies, a lot of the texts that I was reading uh, were fairly doctrinaire. So there were a lot of sort of Christian theologians, ancient and modern, who would sometimes act as if um, Christian thought was the only way to sort of resolve the problems of the world. And on the other hand, I encountered a lot of sort of ideological, ideologically secularist thinkers, atheists, who took quite a hostile attitude towards any kind of religious thought. And I was drawn to the text that my book is about, Deconstruction and Negative Theology, mainly because I think at first they scramble these stereotypes that each side has about the other. So uh, Jacques Derrida was an atheist of a certain kind. Uh, Dionysius the Areopagite is a fifth century uh, Christian monk. Um, but Derrida's atheism and Dionysius's Christianity don't match the sort of dogmatic stereotypes that I think are most common. So in, in sort of developing the book, uh, I, I began by just trying to figure out what was going on in both in both of these authors, because they're both really complicated and sort of difficult to understand on their own terms. But they also have this interesting relationship to each other because Derrida wrote on Dionysius at various points in his career. And that's surprising uh, in a lot of ways because they're so distant in terms of their context and commitments. Um, and what I came to see is that there's this sort of large literature on their relationship with each other. And it's been an important focal point for a discussion about secularization um, because, you know, there is this sort of thing that people find exciting that this atheist, modern atheist Derrida is writing about this medieval Christian, um, Christian theologian. And what I came to see is that even though a lot has been written, um, I think a lot of it reinforced pretty common stereotypes about the relationship between the secular and the religious and so I found that working through these texts in a new way and finding new things in them allowed me to say something new about the sort of larger questions about religion and its place in secular societies. And crucially, just to loop back around to the um, first answer that I gave to this question, I came to see that both of these authors, even though it's not obvious on the surface, I think the best way to understand both of their texts, a crucial lens, is to see them as, as describing a self-critical hope. And I came to think that a hope of this kind uh, casts a really different light on debates over atheism and Christianity and religion and secularization. Um, and that sort of untangling the relationship between these authors helped me to think about hope, which is important for my life, but also for important for understanding secularity and politics in the world that we live in. I love it. I love the idea of approaching politics through hope. I think that's a wonderful message for our context today. So let's start with that. Because um, you do, in your book, you begin by putting the notion of hope in its historical context. So tell us what you mean by this notion and what you see as key moments in the development of its history. Yeah, so I'm engaging debates among theologians and philosophers and theorists about what hope is, and there's a range of different views. One of the things I try to do, as you say at the outset of my book, is to sort of glance back at the history of it. So I feel like hope is one of those everyday words that um, people can sort of use as a sort of familiarity, you know, like, I don't know, uh, people will uh, will talk about their 
um, you know, hopes for the weather or their hopes for um, like the presidential campaign that just ended in the U.S. or, um, you know, like everyday stuff is colored with this language of hope. But it has a theological background that I think is important to understand uh, what, what, how the word is resonating now in these everyday contexts. So um, in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, messianic expectation is an important theme in many of those texts. Early Christians uh, who were sort of emerging from this uh, religious context uh, borrowed this messianic language and applied it to the person of Jesus Christ. And even though they thought that Jesus was the, the sort of realization of these promises in a sense, the New Testament uh, scriptures are shot through with the hope because even though they thought the Messiah had come, they were waiting for the Messiah to come again. So there's this sort of state of unfulfilled suspension in, um, in early Christian writing. The, the word hope, as we know it, enters English sort of via this theological background. So the first use in English that I'm aware of is in a commentary on the, um, the book of Isaiah from the Hebrew scriptures that was written in about uh, 1000 in, uh, CE. And uh, it becomes important in the Middle Ages as a, as a key term for articulating what uh, Christian commitment consists in. So it's said to be one of the three theological virtues along with faith and love and medieval theologians like Thomas Aquinas and others uh, sort of spent a lot of time thinking about the relationship between hope and faith and love and um, really give it a sort of central, central place in their understanding of Christian life. In the modern period, a lot of early modern philosophers sort of go back to an early, earlier uh, ancient Greek concern about hope. So there's a worry in uh, philosophers like Spinoza, for instance, um, harking back to earlier philosophers like Aristotle, there's a worry that hope represents a kind of irrational enthusiasm. Um, so there's a sort of anxiety about hope that emerges in this period that sort of goes along with uh, the rise of a certain vision of calculated rationality that's crucial to um, modern science as it is invented and emerges in this period. Uh, but hope still remains quite important, uh, especially in political movements. So there are echoes of the sort of earlier uh, Jewish messianic tradition in uh, political uh, authors like Karl Marx, who was an atheist of a certain kind, but um, still borrowed from these sort of really this really resonant vision of hope for dramatic transformation in the realm of politics. And most recently, of course, I feel like we see echoes of this kind in, uh, in politics today. So Barack Obama is the clearest example. He uh, made hope explicitly central again um, to American politics, but there's a long tradition in American uh, public discourse of uh, le leveraging hope to sort of energize people and to sort of capture this promise of democracy is something that's continually evolving. In Obama, I think, crucially, uh, we see that the, the word that he's using isn't, isn't, just, uh, isn't just a secular word. I mean, Obama's understanding of hope is deeply inflected by his experience of Christianity, especially in the black church in, um, in the U.S. And I think it's a good example of the way in which, in, in my understanding, untangling this history of hope and sort of tracing the theological background can help us to understand some of the resonances in, um, in the significance of hope today. So um, 
in my in my understanding, in relation to the sort of uh, contemporary philosophical discussions of what hope is, hope is sometimes said to be um, a sort of emotion. This is actually a common sort of early modern philosophical understanding. It's kind of a feeling. I think Hobbes says something along these lines. Um, sometimes it's associated with wish. Often, I think, in both philosophical and political discourse, it's brought pretty close to optimism. And the consensus among philosophers is that, in any case, uh, hope has to have an object that the hoper believes to be possible. So there are all these things that people are saying about hope. I, I think that these, these understandings of hope, for the most part, aren't robust enough to do the work that we need hope to do. So I understand hope. Partly in line of this, in light of this history that I've sketched, but also I think understanding how hope operates, especially in a political context today. Uh, I think hope. I think of hope as a as a resolute desire. I think hope connotes that its object is something that the person wants to happen. You don't you don't hope for something bad if you hope for something something you want to happen. But hope also entails uncertainty. You can't hope for something to happen if you are certain that it's going to happen. Um, so I think of hope as, as inhabiting this place of uncertainty, acknowledging uncertainty and pressing forward anyway, sort of holding on to the desire, even though it's vulnerable to disappointment. And crucially in my understanding, and we'll talk more about this later, but, um, I think that hope doesn't depend upon the sort of rational calculation of probabilities in that sense, central to my vision of hope is that it's consistent with a really profound pessimism. And even I think with the view that the object of hope is impossible. Mm-hmm. So I think a hope that, that we need for the sort of political work that we need to do, but also in our personal lives, something that's strong enough to keep us going when things are really hard is, is a hope that is extremely honest about the, in those moments when it seems unlikely, extremely unlikely or impossible that the hope will be realized but it, it keeps pressing forward anyway, working towards um, working towards the, the hope that it holds. All right. Well, I wonder if we could go into some more detail about a couple of other really important terms in this discussion. So can you tell us what is meant by negative theology as well as deconstruction? Sure. Yeah. So these are categories that I realize uh, they don't, uh, don't come up very often in casual conversation, but um, I think both of these traditions are really interesting and exciting. So negative theology sort of emerges from a prohibition that's in the Hebrew scriptures against idolatry. So in the Torah, there's this consistent insistence that God alone should be worshipped. And so there's an anxiety about the representation of God in graven images. Christians in the in the first century, as they first emerged, they they believed that Jesus, in a sense, was the image of the invisible God, but they also acknowledged that their their sort of vision of God was was incomplete, and so there was this sort of continued anxiety among Christians about the the danger of confusing our our representations of God, whether it is in um, a sort of physical object or in a conceptual object. There's an anxiety about the danger that we would confuse those representations with God in God's self. So in the second century, there are theologians like Justin Martyr and Clement of Alexandria who are drawing on Greek philosophy and sort of borrowing language and sort of techniques from uh, the, especially uh, sort of Platonic philosophy that's around. And so they often applied 
negative terms to God. So they called God, for instance, incomprehensible, ineffable, uh, and so forth, in order to underscore that the, the sort of Christian knowledge of God is incomplete, that the conceptual apparatus that we have for referring to God is drawn from the created realm, but it only approximates the divine. In the fourth and fifth century, um, other, sorry, third, fourth, fifth century, other theologians like Gregory of Nyssa and then um, Dionysius, the Areopagite, is the central figure in my book. They translate this earlier uh, theological technique of sort of trying to resist idolatry through negative language. They develop it into a sort of really robust uh, ethical practice. So in Dionysius, I feel like is, is the focus of my book because he gives the most, I think the clearest and most systematic, uh, systematic expression of this approach. He argues that because God is the creator of everything, God is beyond the created realm. And so since every term that we could apply to God is drawn from the created realm, we need to, in a sense, negate every term that we have for God. And so Dionysius quite radically says that uh, God is not light. Uh, God is not goodness. God is not even divinity, he says. And so he sort of goes through and systematically negates everything that Christians want to say about God. But crucially, and this is why negative theology is something of a misnomer, Dionysius doesn't say that Christians should stop there. It's not, it's not simply shutting down any discourse about God. Instead, for him, the point is to, is to keep saying all of the Christian things, including God is good, God is light, um, God is divine, but to sort of hold those affirmations together with the negation. So he does both at the same time. And in my understanding, the point of that is to uh, remind the individual and to sort of enact this in a communal way remind the individual that uh, it's important to remember that one's knowledge of God is never complete. So that even though Christians believe that they uh, have some kind of relationship to God, in Dionysius' terms, it's important for Christians to continually remind themselves that uh, that's, that's, only, uh, that's only provisional. They, they don't have ultimate knowledge of God. And crucially for him, Christian discourse needs to keep needs to keep in motion, keep in motion, remain open to continual revision. So deconstruction is a central term in the thought of Jacques Derrida, who's a, a French philosopher who died, I think, in two thousand four. And uh, Derrida is famous for being difficult to read. He's a real pain in a way, and um, and actually, like the place I begin the chapter of my book on on Derrida is a comment from one of his teachers. You seem to be on good terms with complication, uh, which was his comment on an uh, essay, student essay of his on the idea of simplicity. Uh, and I think that's something that a lot of people who have tried to read Derrida can really relate to because um, he adopts for principal reasons the sort of rigorously playful style where he's, it's as if he's continually trying to elude the reader. Um so one of the things that I've come to see about Derrida is that it's important to see that he, in almost every page of his writings, he's reading. So he rarely sort of comes out with a programmatic statement um, of principle in the abstract. He's always sort of working within particular texts and traditions in order to sort of pull them apart, see how they pull against each other, sorry, pull against themselves to, to uncover their internal tensions and one of the crucial things that he's trying to do, he often focuses on the history of Western philosophical thought. He's trying to show that 
attempts that many Western philosophers make to sort of create a stable conceptual system, that they they actually don't work because there are always internal tensions that those attempts cover over. And so uh, a lot of what Derrida is doing is trying to show that things are more complicated than they than they seem. That there's always there's always movement. There's always a sort of play is one of the key terms for him. That uh, however systematic uh, uh, a certain philosophical system might be or a political system, because for him it's a point about politics also. Um, he thinks there's always sort of movement that the system itself can't control. And so uh, deconstruction for him is one of the names he gives to his his way of, of reading in order to attend to this play, in order to show that um, that things are always things are always moving. So your premise is based in a rather unconventionally, uh, an, a rather unconventional comparison between uh, this pre-modern Christian monk Dionysius and this post-structuralism theorist Jacques Derrida. And so you claim that they have some surprising similarities, as you already alluded to. So tell us about these. So just from what I've described, I mean, they're very different. And that's that's why I think the similarities are surprising. So I just on the most obvious level, as I've said, uh, you know, Derrida was uh, quite secular, French intellectual. He often seemed sort of anxious about his religious identification. He was raised in a, in a Jewish home uh, in North Africa. And his sort of that Jewish background was important for him. But he didn't affirm religious commitment in any straightforward way. And, and he certainly wasn't Christian, whereas Dionysius, um, I mean, his writings, despite the sort of negativity that I've described that characterizes them, his writings are richly liturgical. They're immersed in the sort of worshiping practice and prayer of the uh, sort of fifth, fifth century, probably Syrian uh, church that he was familiar with. And so just on the surface level, they're really distant, but... I, I think that there's a pretty deep affinity between them. So uh, a lot of scholars point to their linguistic techniques, and I think there are similarities on that level. But I actually think that's not the most interesting connection between them. I, I think both of them, uh, both of them are articulating the kind of hope that I uh, mentioned a moment ago, a hope that, that integrates negativity within itself, a sort of self-critical hope. And they do this in both cases by holding together uh, a rigorous negativity that 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 isn't that doesn't allow any exceptions. So for Dionysius, as I've said, he thinks that every name for God has to be negated. He doesn't he doesn't allow for any loopholes that would give Christians a sort of stable toehold in order to to like develop a system of knowledge about the divine. And similarly for Derrida, he argues that things are always unstable. That if there's Anyone who thinks that they've created a, a metaphysical system that explains things, uh, there's always some internal tension or contradiction that, that throws it into motion again. So both of them wear their negativity on the surface, as it were, but both of them also maintain affirmations at the same time. So as I've said for Dionysius, he says that we actually, the Christians need to affirm the very names for God that they negate. So for him, negation and affirmation are, are equal in extent. In a, in a paradoxical way. For Derrida also, even though he he thinks that in relation to democracy, for instance, which is a, a key term for him, that no existing political system can instantiate democracy and that no conceptual system can adequately describe democracy, 
he thinks it's important to continue continue affirming democracy, to to continue to try to work for it as best we can, and to try to understand it as best we can. So both of them, I think, maintain a really radical negativity, but they also maintain particular commitments that their negativity calls into question and throws into motion again. And I think in both of their cases, and this is the key point for me, this this tension between affirmation and negativity that they both exhibit is possible through hope. I think it exemplifies the sort of hope that I've described that uh, acknowledges that it's vulnerable to disappointment, but keeps going anyway. It's, it's a hope that is clearly different from a sort of abstract certain knowledge, but it's a practice, a sort of ethical practice, a discipline of persistence, uh, of affirming particular desires, particular goals, uh, even though they are unstable and uncertain. And so it's on that level, a sort of ethical practice of hope that I think the two authors, despite their many differences, are similar. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you more about uh, this understanding of deconstruction as an ethical practice. Um, and because you say that despite its reputation, it can be seen as such, and it preserves a res- the possibility of unpredictable transformation. And it's sustained by hope. So these are all ideas that you've kind of alluded to already, but let's go more into that. What do you mean by that? One of the things I'm thinking about here is that there are there are a lot of theorists in the sort of post-critique conversation, like Rita Felsky and Eve Kosofsky-Sedgwick and Bruno Latour, who worry that critique can undermine our capacity to actually affirm things in particular contexts. So I take this concern really seriously. So for Latour, it's explicitly political. He thinks that a sort of critique run amok makes it more likely for an unscrupulous politician to, uh, to sort of take power and control the space of conversation. Um, for Rita Felsky, I mean, her, her work is a really beautiful account, I think, of the way in which a, a negative affect and a negative instinct in some contexts can close down the space for other other intellectual um, uh, activities for an affect that's more uh, affirming and positive. The thing that I, and so th- this is a concern that often gets applied to Derrida, I think implicitly in Velsky and Latour, Derrida's deconstruction is, is often one of the targets because it has this sort of deep negativity that I've described. But I think this is a misunderstanding of what Derrida is actually doing because I, uh, I think that he even from the very beginning of his work, he makes clear that the, the negativity that characterizes deconstruction is itself oriented towards the towards the an affirmation of the of the unexpected. So it's not a negativity for its own sake. The point for him is that uh, the metaphysical systems that try to create some sort of uh, sort of perfect certainty, they're an attempt in his view to try to cover over the anxiety of human life, because as he acknowledges in one of his early essays, uh, instability is, is, uh, is destabilizing. It's sort of personally a source of anxiety a lot of the time. And so in Derrida's view, these metaphysical systems try to cover that over, but they're fragile in his view. So he thinks the certainty that they provide, the security that they provide can't last. And so it's prone to shatter when things don't go as expected. And as I understand him, he's trying to articulate an alternative disposition to uncertainty. So rather than, rather than saying that 
it's just all negativity and we sort of need to uh, stay in this dour space. I see his, his work as quite playful in a positive sense. He's sort of opening, not, he's, he's not foreclosing affirmation, but I see him as opening up the proliferation of affirmation. This is especially clear, I think, in his account of responsibility and judgment. So he, uh, responsibility is a, is a term that emerges as central uh, towards the middle of his career. And it's especially evident in his later work. But I think the entire entirety of his corpus can be well understood as trying to underline that there's no way around the responsibility that people have for judgment, that uh, some people try to appeal to metaphysical certainty in order to exempt themselves from the need to decide in particular cases. But in, in Derrida's view, every decision is uncertain. Every decision is a risk and there's no way, there's no way to get around that. But rather than saying that like we have to, we have to somehow avoid deciding because it's not certain. Instead, he says that this is what it means to, to live as responsibly as possible. He says that we can never fulfill our responsibility to each other. There's always more. And that more, I think, is maybe the key, the key impulse in Derrida's work, that sort of impulse to, um, to, 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 to inject um, movement, to keep stretching forward. So responsibility has this character of all, being always more. But uh, he says that we should try as best we can in every particular case to uh, act as responsibly as possible. And this is one of the reasons I think, for instance, in relation to um, uh, politics, as I've said, I mentioned briefly that Derrida sees democracy as somehow um, something that can't be realized in concrete systems. But he still, not often, but now and then, he'll affirm particular political movements or particular political structures as promoting uh, democracy. So not as fulfilling democracy, but as uh, doing something that's on his terms positive. And this is the, this is, I think this exemplifies his, his vision of um, a sort of responsible judgment. So for him, the negativity functions as a reminder that responsibility is never fulfilled. We should never think that democracy is done. It's a task that continues uh, but the point of that isn't to sort of close things down, and it certainly isn't to sort of uh, ad- adopt a, a, a sour demeanor. The point is to is to uh, experiment, to play as best we can, um, in the recognition that there's always more to be done. To avoid the complacency that you're exactly. talking about, maybe That's right. right? Yeah. Wonderful. Well, let's turn our attention next to uh, Dionysius and look at the practical implications of a negative theology. So you suggest that Christian thought can, in fact, exist in tension between negativity and affirmation, and that it doesn't have to be dogmatically unquestioning. So tell us about your thoughts here. So one of the crucial things my book is trying to do is to respond to a common stereotype about religion. So there's many theorists uh, assume that religion forecloses critique, that religion is all about asserting a kind of certainty that, uh, that gives people some sort of some sort of ultimate assurance so that they, uh, they no longer have to have to worry about whether their views are correct. They have some sort of divine warrant. Um, there are a lot of people who make arguments of this kind. I think it gets around in pop, uh, popular discourse. One of the theorists that I focus on is uh, named Stathis Gorgoras. Um, and one of the things that I think is so interesting about negative theology as a tradition is that I think it shows that this is a, 
this is a stereotype that's uh, it fits to be sure some religious communities, but it's not, it's not fair to say that it characterizes religion as such. So as I briefly described earlier, uh, Dionysius, I think, exemplifies this really radical critique that is, is juxtaposed with affirmation, maintains um, this sort of tension between negativity and affirmation. So for him, he affirms all of the traditional claims of Christian theology about the divinity of Jesus. And he says many things about Jesus's mother, Mary, and about the importance of the uh, Christian practices of worship, such as the Eucharist and baptism. So he's like a really traditional theologian. And I should add maybe at this point that he was also deeply influential on the most traditional theology uh, that would, that would follow him. So for Thomas Aquinas, who's sort of the, the uh, paradigmatic theologian, especially for Catholics, but not only for Catholics. Um, Thomas Aquinas quotes Dionysius enormously often, sort of after Augustine and Aristotle. Dionysius is one of the key sources for Aquinas's thought, and Aquinas has been crucial for a lot of medieval theology. So Dionysius, in a way, is sort of at the center of Christian thought. But at the same time, he, as I've said, uh, denies all of these traditional Christian uh, names for God. And a lot, of, a lot of interpreters take that as a kind of paradox. Many specialist interpreters, specialists in early Christian studies, specialists on Dionysius, they, they try to resolve the tension in one direction or another. So they, they often say that um, Dionysius' negativity doesn't really apply to Christian worship, for instance. So they'll say that um, Christian worship somehow brackets the entirety of the Dionysian corpus. So that even though you know, Dionysius might say um, that the negation of theological terms is necessary. There's a point at which it stops, and that, and that, uh, in their view, um, Dionysius affirms Christian practices in a way that's not qualified by any kind of negativity. I, I don't think that holds up on the basis of a careful reading of the Dionysian corpus. I think it's pretty clear that Dionysius positions Christian practice as something that's provisional. He says it's something that Christians do. Um, now as best they can, but he contrasts this with the time to come in his words that, um, that he thinks is rigorously mysterious. So he thinks that union with God in contrast to the sort of common, um, understanding of Christian mysticism that emerges in the, in the later middle ages, Dionysius, uh, doesn't say that union with God is something that's been achieved. He doesn't claim to have, um, to have had some kind of special experience of God that gives him authority. He even calls into question if one is, he says that if one had had such an experience, um, they, uh, they wouldn't know that they had had an experience because God is so rigorously mysterious. So for him, in my reading, there's no, there's no toehold. There's no sort of ultimate point of certainty on the basis of which Christians can construct a system Instead, I think he, he positions Christian practice as this, um, as a sort of ho- hopeful affirmation that exists in this tension between negativity and, um, and affirmation. Okay, so in chapter three, you elaborate on your interpretation of the character of hope, drawing on your readings of these two fellows, and you call it a self-critical hope. That's an ongoing practice rather than the assertion of an expected conclusion. So what does that look like in action? So this is really where the, where the book uh, comes to life for me. So 
I am really invested in the text that I have been discussing, but I, I care about them, as I said at the outset, mainly because I think they uh, can help us to think about what it means to hope. And in particular, I think they can help to articulate a convincing response to objections that are sometimes made against hope. So um, philosophers like Albert Camus in the 20th century, or um, as I have mentioned briefly, Spinoza and Aristotle in earlier, earlier periods, they sometimes worry that hope posits a kind of confidence that distracts from life here and now. So for Camus, he's worried that uh, in, in his view, life is absurd in some, in a deep way, but he thinks that hope constitutes a kind of illusion that, that um, covers over this fact. He sometimes describes it as a, as a screen that people hold in front of their faces in order to avoid looking at the abyss that's before them. And I take this concern really seriously, partly because I think it's political also. So there are um, Afro-pessimist thinkers like Frank Wilderson and Calvin Warren and others who argue that in the context of American public life, for instance, but not only there, that hope has sometimes been a, 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 a means by which Black people in particular have been distracted from actually responding to the, the oppression and uh, systemic disadvantage they have suffered um, often in a way that's quite physically brutal. And so I think there's a legitimate worry that hope can be distracting both from just in general life as it is, but more specifically political injustice. And that's the reason that for me, I think hope involves a kind of negativity within it. So I, I'm worried about the, about, the, um, about the momentum of complacency, the sort of pull, the... the um, the uh, gravity that complacency can exert, I think, in a particular uh, set of circumstances, especially if they're comfortable, it's easy to sort of slip into thinking that this is how it will always be. And likewise, I think hope, if it's um, if it's seen as a sort of optimism, it's a, if it's a kind of confidence that things will be well, I think it can it can distract from uh, a. a an honest confrontation with the ways in which things are often difficult from the ways in which there are often really good reasons to be pessimistic. I think some people, um, and I think it's especially a pathology in American public life, but also in Australia where I live now, some people feel like in order to stave off despair, they have to pretend that everything is all right because it would just be too crushing to acknowledge the way that things are hard. I think Dionysius and Derrida are compelling partly because they, they show that that's not the case. They show by, in the way that they both hold together, as I've described, negativity and affirmation, they affirm particular desires, particular aims, while recognizing that they are vulnerable to disappointment and that they remain subject to revision. They show, I think, that it's possible to hold together a really deep pessimism and hope. So um, in that sense, I, I think against someone like uh, Camus, hope doesn't need to be a kind of optimistic lie about how everything's okay. I think if hope builds into itself this, uh, or rather, I think hope does have built into itself this tacit acknowledgement that things are things are uncertain, but it names the possibility that I think humans have within them to acknowledge that vulnerability, acknowledge that uh, that uh, uncertainty, but to to keep going anyway. And, uh, 
yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a powerful idea, both for individual life, but also for um, common life and politics. It sounds to me like you're talking about like a uh, a decision to take an attitude, even though you're acknowledging the reality of the situation, as opposed to some kind of blind optimism. Exactly. No, that's really helpful. So um, I mentioned at the beginning that hope is often associated with a kind of positive affect or emotion. And sometimes, on the other hand, it's associated with a, a sort of optimistic view that things will be well. I understand hope in contrast to these two possibilities as a discipline. And, and, and that's why, as, you, as you've suggested, I think it has this sort of element of decision built within it. I, I, my account of hope centers on the will rather than on the affect or the intellect. Because I, I think that that better describes what, what people are actually doing when, when they, um, in, a, in a political movement. I mean, I was, I was there in, uh, in uh, 2008 in Chicago at Barack Obama's election rally in Grant Park. And it felt like a lot of people there, like I was there with 500,000 of my closest friends and Many of us hadn't thought that it was possible that Obama would be elected, that a black man in America at this point in its history could attain that office. Um, but we pressed, for, we pressed for it anyway, and then it happened. And I think before we knew it was going to happen, the thing that allowed us to, to keep going, even though it seemed like it was almost unimaginable that it would happen, <clears throat> certainly at points, uh, was, was this sort of decision, this, this resilience, uh, a discipline of holding with it. Because often... In a political movement and in personal life, the feelings fade. They they can be unstable. Something else happens, and um, the sort of uh, exhilaration and excitement doesn't last. And often, in in the case of something like Obama's first presidential campaign, the reasons for optimism are really fragile. Often, there are a lot of reasons to think that the thing one hopes for isn't going to happen. Maybe it, it even can't happen. But I think hope can can look can look those realities squarely uh, in the face and acknowledge them, but keep going because people have this sort of capacity for will and resilience within them. Yeah, I really like that. So you also critique some of the ways that others have compared the writings of Dionysius and Derrida. So suggesting that the latter, or I guess others have suggested that the latter's engagement with negative theology is in fact more nuanced. Um, I'm sorry, that's your suggestion, that that it's more nuanced than uh, others have previously given him credit, and that the common ground between the two authors uh, is about ethics rather than epistemology. So tell us what you mean by that. So the conversation between deconstruction and negative theology has been a really important site for reflection on the place of religion in a secular context. And as I mentioned, Derrida mentions negative theology repeatedly throughout his career. I did some work for this book in the archives. I looked through Derrida's um, unpublished papers and I found that even when he was a even when he was a student before he even went to university, uh, he was sort of thinking through these traditions of uh, pre-modern Christian mystical theology. And so at a few points, he discusses uh, negative theology and Dionysius in particular at greater length. And a lot of commentators, most commentators, I think almost every commentator, thinks that what Derrida is doing here is sort of stigmatizing negative theology as not being negative enough. So in this, in this sense, they read Derrida as 
reinforcing the uh, the sort of common stereotype of religion that I mentioned earlier, that religion is sort of antithetical to critique. So uh, these commentators on deconstruction and negative theology, they tend to disagree mainly about whether they think Derrida is right or wrong to think that religion is um, is insufficient, negative theology is insufficiently negative in this way, that it sort of provides a kind of certainty that deconstruction excludes. And so uh, for someone like Jean-Luc Marion, he thinks that negative theology provides a kind of, of, of stable affirmation that deconstruction can't manage precisely because in the experience of worship and prayer, uh, Christians have a sort of contact with the ultimate that someone who's outside that context can't have in the same way. And someone like John Caputo has been a really influential interpreter of Derrida, especially on his relationship to religion. He, he argues that Derrida is right, that negative theology um, still sort of maintains this kernel of affirmation that, that uh, is exempt from critique. And in that sense, he, he thinks that Derrida does something better. He, he thinks Derrida is truer to the ways in which things are actually unstable. I think both of these sides misunderstand Derrida's reading. I think um, my work, both with the published text, but also with the unpublished text, shows that Derrida's reading of negative theology is much more extensive and much more nuanced than this reading suggests. He, he doesn't have just one reading of negative theology. He acknowledges that negative theology has speaks in more than one voice. It's not simply univocal, and, but sort of both considered as a tradition broadly, but also within the text of Dionysius in particular. Nowhere does he say that um, in a sort of categorical way that Dionysius is insufficiently negative. This is a concern that he raises, but he, he uh, acknowledges that there are other readings that are possible. And so uh, I actually think the, the, the point of Derrida's reading is related to the point that I was just making about the, the importance of hope for politics. So at points Derrida explains his preoccupation with negative theology. And he, he acknowledges that it's because it's, it's related to what he thinks is necessary to be responsible and especially responsible in political contexts. He thinks that negative theology uh, exemplifies the, the need for this sort of intentional restlessness. Uh, and so one of the things that I've, that I've come to see, and one of the things I argue in my book is that uh, reading deconstruction and negative theology together better shows that there's another possibility in debates over the relationship between religion and secularization than is often acknowledged. So I feel like the sort of debate between John Caputo and Jean-Luc Marion is reproduced on a sort of broader scale when theorists talk about um, religion in secular societies. I think uh, some people like Caputo think that determinate religious traditions, people often call organized religion, is always sort of oppressive. And so they try to retreat to a kind of uh, indeterminate spirituality. Whereas others like Jean-Luc Marion think that we need religion in order to sort of uh, provide uh, an access to transcendence that's, that's not available elsewhere. They think that religion does something, provides a sort of um, certainty that that uh, secular hope can't access. But I, I think that read well, Derrida and Dionysius show that actually religious people and secular people are 
they're in the same position that in both cases, people are affirming particular commitments, whether they're religious or political or personal, they're affirming particular commitments that they don't know whether they're the right things to commit to. They don't know whether those commitments are going to be fulfilled, but they find resources of resilience within themselves to, to keep going and also to acknowledge the ways in which they might need to be subject to revision. So in this sense, and this is one of the ways in which I think they help to um, help to resist certain problematic interpretations of religious hope. I think Derrida and Ignatius show that uh, secular and religious people share a hope that's of the same kind, even though its content is sometimes different. That leads me to my next question, which is about um, how do your findings about Dionysius and Derrida's approach to these questions about ethics, uh, what do they have to say about the practice of religion in a modern secular context? So one of the things that's important for me, as I've said, is to, is to try to, to try to undermine common stereotypes that people have about religion and secularity, because I think these terms are often opposed. I have done a lot of work on, uh, on the relationship between atheism and religious thought. And, uh, often these things are sort of set up as opposites. And this is reproduced in the interpretation of, of Derrida. So one of the most, uh, I think actually compelling and uh, brilliant and certainly influential recent interpretations of Derrida's work is by Martin Haglund, who uh, argues that that Derrida he's sort of resisting this religious reading of Derrida that people like John Caputo have made. Haglund argues that actually Derrida's Derrida's approach is opposed to religion as such uh, because religion uh, always uh, always sort of tries to tries to find some sort of way to exempt people from ultimate uh, insecurity and in particular from the the sort of uh, um, the fr- fragility of human life that, that our mortality gives it. And so Haglund associates Derrida with a, with a radical atheism um, that's, that's simply opposed to, opposed to the religious. One of the things I think is so interesting about Derrida is that I, I think he shows that this is, um, this is almost exactly the opposite of what he's doing when Derrida is engaging religious texts. So whereas Haglund has an extremely simplistic interpretation of what religion consists in, he almost never cites any religious source when he does. It's almost always a Christian source. Um, He never engages non-Christian traditions in any serious way. And he also doesn't engage Christian thought in any serious way. So he sort of reduces religion to this um, kind of ridiculous stereotype that uh, I think any, anyone who reads the text seriously can see is misleading. Um, Derrida is not that kind of reader. He is always attuned to the sort of instability and complexity of texts and traditions. He's always attending to the way that they pull against themselves. And as I've described in negative theology, as with other religious traditions, Derrida realizes that more than one reading is possible. And so I think this is maybe most clearly seen in a, in a, a text that just came out. I translated a text that was previously unpublished uh, by Derrida called Christianity and Secularization that just came out in the journal Critical Inquiry. And one of the things that Derrida does here is he, he shows that, um, as many scholars of religion have been arguing, uh, Derrida shows that secularization emerges from a Christian context, that it's not simply the sort of univocal rejection of religion. But that it's actually well understood as 
a sort of translation of key religious themes. And Derrida traces this through Enlightenment thinkers like Kant and Rousseau and, uh, and Voltaire and others. Um, but for him, the point, I think, isn't to sort of set the secular and the religious in this static opposition. He is an atheist of a certain kind, but he's an atheist that sometimes he says that he, he prays, or at least in a sort of, uh, he does something like that. And he's always sort of playing with religious texts that aren't his own in order to, to, to sort of use them and to incorporate them into his thinking. So one of the things I think this text that I've just mentioned, but also Derrida's work in general, shows is that uh, the, in a secular context, it's important on a sort of descriptive level to attend to the way in which religious texts and traditions still remain influential in ways that are sometimes subterranean and uh, implicit. And then second, that even an atheist like Derrida can draw positively on religious texts and traditions that aren't his own in order to think positively about politics, what it means to hope, and questions like that. Yeah, so continuing on that idea, you you elaborate on this entanglement of religion and politics, and you suggest that it's both impossible and unnecessary to exclude religion from public life. So are you suggesting that the separation of church and state is something we should give up on? <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh... That's quite a direct question, which I like. Um, I I think it's helpful to distinguish between a couple different kinds of secularism. So um, I'm adopting a distinction that other other scholars have drawn. But I think on the one hand, uh, you can think of a programmatic secularism that would try to exclude religion from uh, public life. So in at least at some points in his career, early in his career, uh, the philosopher John Rawls argued that public discourse, political discourse, uh, needs to operate on the basis of public reason that uh, people share in common. And on this view, religion is often figured as being something that's private and divisive. And so on this view, for someone to sort of enter the public sphere to make a political argument, they have to leave their religious uh, commitments at the door in a way and speak in a way that everyone can, uh, everyone can um, sort of except. Um, on the other hand, I think, uh, so sorry, just to back up, I think a, a programmatic secularism of that kind that would try to exclude religion from the public sphere is really problematic. Um, as you mentioned, I think it's, it's impossible because for reasons that I've gestured towards, I think religion remains influential even in the wake of secularization. So I think a lot of projects for secularization that try to exclude religion from the public sphere actually leave religious concepts um, operating in ways that simply aren't attended to. Um, I also think this, this uh, programmatic secularism is unnecessary because I think, it, I think it responds to a really important problem, which is that some relig religious traditions are responsible for violence. Sometimes religious discourse can be divisive and exclusive. But I think it's not necessary for that reason to exclude religion first because uh, I think these problems are also seen in discourses that aren't religious. I think any any language, including, ironically enough, the sort of philosophical language of someone like Rawls, I think any discursive system can be exclusive to people who aren't inside of it. And so it's not simply a problem with religion. religion religious communities aren't the only ones that are violent. And secondly, uh, because religious traditions, as I've been describing, are really diverse and multivalent. So it's not simply the case that religion is the enemy of secular democracy. 
I think, uh, I think religious traditions can actually often affirm a second kind of secularism. So in contrast to a programmatic secularism that would try to exclude religion, I think many religious traditions have, have actually argue, arguably been one of the important sources for a programmatic secularism that argues that no single tradition, religious or otherwise, should control the public sphere. So um, I think on this view, it would be inappropriate to try to set up a theocracy in which, um, as I think actually sometimes it seems in the United States in, a, in an implicit way is the case that there's a sort of uh, Christian discourse that governs the public space. Um, I think a, a programmatic secularism would say that the public sphere ought to be open to people f- with any commitments, religious or otherwise. And um, one of the reasons that I I think that Derrida in particular, but also Dionysius can uh, contribute to this conversation in ways that haven't been appreciated is that I think they, they offer an alternative to secularism and theocracy. So I think in a way, the, the approach that Derrida articulates where he, he sort of recognizes that religious, religious concepts like messianism um, and hope remain operative in secular democracy. I think they can help us to understand how democracy also works, but also how it can work better. And in this, in this sense, I think he offers a vision of, of politics that's, that's neither a sort of hard secularism that's opposed to religion as such, but nor, nor is it a sort of theocracy that would allow a particular tradition to control the public sphere. But instead, it's a sort of open space of free contestation that's not determined in advance. Okay. So you say that your reading of Dionysius points to the way political movements can both affirm realistic proposals in hope and subject them, subject them to utopian critique, uh, which can point the way out of dogmatic ideology. So how can we put this into practice? I mean, this is something I've been thinking a lot, especially lately, because I think in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic and then in relation to the sort of recent upheaval in American public life, which um, I, I'm deeply invested in, in terms of the movements, uh, movement for black lives, the protests against systemic racism, and then the recent um, U.S. presidential campaign. I've been thinking a lot about how hope, as I understanding, as I understand it, how it's actually significant for the world that we work in. One of the things that I argue in my book is that um, sort of drawing off the ideas that I was just describing, I think secular spaces aren't as secular as some people would, would make them out to be. So some theorists have argued, I think pretty convincingly, that even even secular democracies like the US and Canada and Australia still still rely on appeal to some things that are held up as sacred, which is to say that they are invested with a significance that goes beyond their their utility. So um, I think in the U.S., a concept like uh, like sort of democracy and freedom or a text like the U.S. Constitution or figures like Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King Jr. Um, or an institution like the military in many contexts, these things are sort of held up as a, as a sort of locus for the unity of the community, something that everybody shares as a sort of a symbol that carries a special significance. 
um, that's not simply about what they get us, but it's something that um, the community sort of values in its own sake. One of the reasons I think it's important to keep thinking in relation to religious thought about, about secular politics is that as as religious thinkers know, sacred things can be dangerous. This this is why I think the the tradition of negative theologies I've described it is so has so much to offer in relation to contemporary secular politics because there's this anxiety in negative theology about the danger of idolatry and the sort of danger that um, our that our complacency about the things that we that we sort of hold up is symbolically significant that it could allow those symbols to harden and. Uh, take on a sort of ideological function that could be used violently on the one hand, and on the other hand can be used to foreclose legitimate contestation. And some theorists, so I respond at some length to the Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben, theorists like Agamben sometimes argue that negative theology actually exemplifies this ideological function of the sacred. Agamben argues sort of in this similar way as the specialist interpreters of Dionysius that I argued uh, that I mentioned before, Agamemnon argues that Dionysius actually thinks he has access to a kind of uh, certainty that he 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 appeals to the sacred according to Agamemnon in order to uh, to provide a sort of locus for absolute authority. In my reading, that's just a mistake. That that's a misunderstanding of the Dionysian corpus because as I've as I've described briefly here, I think Dionysius holds every theological affirmation uh, subject to critique. So he thinks that uh, even though he affirms the traditional claims of Christian theology, he acknowledged that those very claims are subject to revision. They're only provisional. They don't have a sort of ultimate um, ultimate authority for him. And I think the result of this is that uh, in his view, every authority is only provisional, even the authority of the church. So he affirms, and he's actually, ironically enough, Dionysius is the inventor of our term hierarchy. So Dionysius coins the Greek term from which our, our word hierarchy derives. And for him, it refers to a sort of holy order. And uh, a, a lot of people see this and they think that what he's describing along the lines that Agamemnon suggests is the sort of uh, hierarchy in the stereotype sense that we tend to understand it as something that is sort of exempt from critique. But actually what Dionysius does, I show in my book, is he, he shows that even the Christian hierarchies that he affirmed are, in his view, they must be subject to critique because they're oriented towards a God who is beyond the grasp of any text or institution. So I think what Dionysius exemplifies is the possibility of affirming particular political structures, which is how I see his interpretation of uh, hierarchy. It's like a given political structure that he affirms, while at the same time insisting that that structure has to be subject to critique, that it's not it doesn't possess a sort of ultimate adequacy, has to be has to remain subject to revision, and so in relation to the, the sort of uh, tension is, that you describe between realism and utopianism, I think uh, Dionysius exemplifies the possibility of holding hopes that are really radical, ho- hoping for things that don't seem like they're possible on the on the conditions of what what we know to be the case today, but at the same time, working in ways that are realistic to do as best we can under given circumstances. And to sort of use the utopian hope as a lever to, to keep the particular projects that we pursue politically or otherwise, to keep them in motion. 
and uh, and this just to loop back to the theme of the sacred. This is what I see going on in uh, in in the sort of uh, in the political movements that are going on today. So I've I've found that the movement for Black Lives has helped me to think in new ways about about hope and its significance. And uh, I think there there are sort of sacred things that are held up there. The name of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the the sort of um, the insistence on uh, freedom from violence at the hands of the state and the insistence on the the value of black lives and a reminder that the that black lives are often um, are often uh, neglected or uh, positively oppressed by uh, official power I think that's that's holding up things that people I think the movements have power partly because they are holding up things that people recognize have a sort of transcendent significance of a certain kind. And I think sacrality, the sacred in movements of that kind can have a really important motivating force. And they could also move political movements to sort of keep, keep asking for systems to be better. And I think that's the kind of tension between um, utopianism and realism that I, that I have in mind. Well, I had actually wanted to ask you about the current political situation in the United States, because um, I think your book raises ideas that have special relevance for our moment. Uh, Joe Biden was just declared the victor over Donald Trump at a time when the United States is riven by entrenched, impassioned and diametrically opposed political camps. And so you write that hope, and I'll quote you here, hope, quote, nurtures the work of attentive reflection and democratic debate and presses us to imagine unpredictable possibilities. So based on the insights you've elaborated, how might the U.S. leverage hope to heal the current political landscape? I mean, it's a really difficult question, and it's one that I've been struggling with in a really deep way because I I found what's been happening, like a lot of people, over the last year to be really heartbreaking. I mean, the COVID-19 pandemic has been so devastating, and I think it's really intensified many inequalities that were already really terrible. So the statistics about the way in which in the U.S. the pandemic has disproportionately affected black and brown people is just really heartbreaking. I mean, the, the loss of life, the loss of years, especially in communities that were already um, already suffering is, uh, yeah, it's just, it's wrenching. And at the same time, the movements that I've been talking about for racial justice have called attention to systems of racial oppression that are really deeply entrenched and in many cases are official policy. And so I feel in a way like I'm not, I'm not equal to the, to the significance of the political moment. I mean, it's such a, such a vast and difficult moment that we're living in. I don't have any easy answers. I also want to underline that I, I try to be quite careful in the book to, to ensure that my account of hope is open to people with a wide range of religious and political commitments. So um, I think that what I've described, I hope that what I've described can be helpful to people regardless of where they're coming from, uh, just to provide a set of tools. But as I, as I look at what's going on, I guess I've found the tools that I've developed in the book to fit in a certain way. So first in response to the pandemic, I think a lot of public figures have exemplified the danger of both complacency and despair. So, um, I think Donald Trump quite obviously has been 
quite dismissive of the virus. He's said repeatedly that it would just disappear like a miracle, he said. Um, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil dismissed COVID-19 as the sniffles, that is, before he actually contracted COVID-19. Um, so a lot of political leaders have sort of acted like it's no big deal. Um, you know, we don't need to worry. I find that complacent. Um, on the other hand, some social scientific research has showed that people, people who overestimate the rate of infection, people who think that COVID-19 is actually more dangerous than it actually is, are less likely to actually take the measures like washing their hands or wearing a mask that would slow the spread of the virus. And I think that exemplifies a despair that I actually feel the pull of myself. I mean, it's so the sort of public health and economic problems are so vast. It's easy just to, just to say, there's nothing we can do. We should just let the virus rip and, uh, and sort of go on as best we can. And I think both of those approaches are really dangerous in terms of the, both like the, the preservation of human life, but also the long-term economic consequences. And one of the things I think hope offers, hope in my understanding offers in this context is a way to acknowledge the uncertainties that exist because there are so many things that even now are uncertain about how the virus works, but also about, um, you know, like how the vaccine will operate if and when we get a vaccine and, um, some things have come into clearer focus, but there's a lot that remains uncertain. But we don't have to take that uncertainty as a reason to do nothing, because hope, as I've said, acknowledges that uh, things are uncertain, but it it does the best it can and keeps working to uh, incorporate new information and to sort of keep keep working uh, to to respond as situations shift. So I think hope sort of gives us a kind of flexibility and freedom that we need to act responsibly, even though we don't know whether it will work out. I think that's even more important in relation to the sort of deep political conflicts that you were describing. So I think, um, I, I think there are a lot of reasons to be discouraged about the prospects for American democracy. And as an American, I find that heartbreaking because, uh, I think the sources are really complicated. I think, um, the division, I think it's largely related to identity and um, I think demonization uh, makes it harder for people to actually reckon with each other. I think people are operating on the basis of information that's not the same in many cases. And in many cases, the information that they get from their media sources is quite misleading. And to be frank, I think it's asymmetrical. So by inclination, my instincts are ironic. I want to try to see as, as I think Derrida continually argues that things are more complicated, I don't, to, I don't want to demonize people myself, but I think it's the case that um, many people, especially on the right in American politics, have uh, abandoned a commitment to carefully evaluate the best information that we have available. And in many cases, they've abandoned a commitment to democracy. So I think uh, there are versions of conservative thought that I, I think bring something important to public discourse. But I think many of the voices that are dominant on the right today are uh, actually quite corrosive to the prospects for American democracy. And you see that now. I mean, this morning I saw that only three Republican senators have acknowledged Joe Biden's victory. Donald Trump still hasn't acknowledged uh, Joe Biden's apparent Electoral College victory. Mike Pence sent out a fundraising email yesterday uh, saying that Democrats are trying to steal the election and calling on their supporters to, to fight the, the result. 
And I think in the context, given that there's no, there's no verified uh, or even even credible uh, accusation of voter fraud in any jurisdiction, the procedures in place seem to have gone off uh, surprisingly smoothly, given the context. Th- those calls from the right to undermine the election result are deeply irresponsible, and they they undermine the future prospects for American democracy, because as Senator Ron Johnson, a Republican, said the other day, half of the country isn't going to accept Joe Biden's election as legitimate. So all of that makes me like makes me feel tempted to despair about the prospects for American politics. And I think it's important for people who care about democracy and, and the idea that government will be representative. I think all of us should be quite pessimistic about the prospects because the sort of forces arrayed against um, representative democracy in the U.S. are really, really strong. But I think in this moment, above all, it's important to be hopeful, which is, again, for me, the opposite of optimism. It's a, it's a hope. My hope politically now is a profoundly pessimistic one. But I, I think that we can and sometimes should hope for things that appear to be impossible for us. So I think what I, what I think hope offers now in terms of healing the current political landscape, I think it uh, is the thing that will sustain people from uh, all sides in American politics to oppose those who uh, undermine the legitimacy of the electoral process and to try to work for a system that's more representative. Because I think before, before we even get to debates over policy in terms of um, healthcare, racial justice, and other things. Before that, I think uh, a shared commitment to democracy ought to be the foundation of the political conversation. And my own hope is that people will come together because they realize that even if we disagree on a lot of policy issues, that we all we all should care about democracy as something that we um, something that we all believe in. So that's my hope, pessimistic though it is. <laughs> yes, I I uh, share your sentiment, and I think it pretty much comes down to you know what's the alternative? You have to choose to hope, uh, regardless of of I I agree. There's many reasons to be very pessimistic right now, but you either allow yourself to sink into despair. I love the the image of the momentum of complacency that you mentioned before, which is almost like this paradoxical or um, oxymoronic idea of the momentum of inertia, but you either choose to maintain a hopeful attitude or you allow yourself to just sink into the nothingness of despair. And I mean, nothing good's going to happen from that. Right. And, and I think this political context kind of brings to light just how important these decisions are. Like you were saying, it can start to seem abstract, but these ideas are important in real life. You know, they inform how we respond to circumstances. Absolutely. I think, I think that's really well put. And I, I should say too, like, I I don't think that I, I I wrote this book because I'm bad at hoping, not because I'm good at it. So it's not as if I think that it's not as if I think that I like, I'm, I'm the master of, of this thing. I feel that gravitational force of complacency and despair in my own self. But for the reasons that you were saying, I think it's really important to to try to find ways to to maintain an, a sort of honest, lucid, um, but resilient hope in contexts like this, because um, otherwise we'd be in a really terrible situation. 
And I realized after I asked you the question, I thought, oh, shoot, here we have this nettled scenario. And I just asked you, so in light of your research, what's the solution? <laughs> so I'm sorry if I put you on the spot. No, 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 a little no, bit mean, for... I, I love the question because I said at the top of our conversation, like this, this is why I wrote the book, is that like for me, these abstract texts that we've been talking about, they matter to me because like they matter for my own life as I try to figure out a hope. And I think they matter for the world as I try to figure out the kind of hope. I try to figure out how to give language to the kind of hope that I both see in politics and that I think we need more of in our politics. So it's what it's all about, absolutely, even though it's hard to talk about it. Excellent. Well, David, I've taken up a lot of your time today. I want to thank you so much, though, for agreeing to come on the show. But before we go, can you tell us what you're currently working on? Yeah, sure. So um, I am writing a book about miracles which picks up on a lot of themes from my first book. So as I've mentioned a couple of times, unlike many philosophers, I, I think that hope can sometimes take an object that the person who's hoping believes to be impossible. And so in this sense, I think it has a kind of deep relationship with the miraculous, which is to say something that doesn't, doesn't seem like it's possible on the basis of the conditions that exist in a certain um, you know, according to our best knowledge of the world as it is. So one of the things I want to try to do in my uh, book on miracles, which I'm hoping to finish in the next year, is to to try to untangle a philosophical debate about miracles, which is often, it's often reduced to, to a debate over sort of the epistemology of religious knowledge, like whether, whether it's reasonable to believe that a miracle had occurred and, uh, you know, whether we could know such a thing. And a lot of the discussion focuses on the philosopher, the modern philosopher, David Hume, whose critique of miracles is really famous. And a lot of contemporary analytic philosophers take this, uh, you know, unpick Hume's argument to try to figure out whether on Hume's terms is reasonable or unreasonable to believe that a miracle had happened, whether Hume is right. I think that conversation misses the point of what, what's going on in Hume's text, which is, I think, uh, undergirded by an ethical perspective that actually drives the whole thing. So I think the the sort of epistemological questions, the questions about what we can know and what we should believe are secondary to questions about what kind of person um, Hume thinks it's good to be. And in this sense, I think Hume's critique of miracles is uh, deeply connected with his dismissal of what he says, quote, the ignorant and barbarous nations who continue to believe in miracles. So uh, using Hume as a sort of linchpin, I am trying to open up this philosophical debate over miracles to think about um, how post-colonial theorists have tried to complicate conceptions of rationality that are common in, uh, in Western philosophical thought. Conceptions of rationality that, in their view, are often um, either implicitly racist or, um, or are, at, at the very least, displaying a sort of parochial um, European perspective. And so sort of using post-colonial theory as a lever, I want to go back to uh, pre-modern reflection on miracles and to argue that the key question for them isn't about the sort of justification of beliefs, but rather in medieval theologians like Bernard of Clairvaux and others, the miraculous names, the possibility for a radical amazement that in later chapters of the book, I want to argue, remains really important today. So miracles is another another one of those theological concepts that can seem like it's out of step with the secular world. But I actually think, 
I hear echoes of the miraculous all around when people talk about events that amaze them, whether they're large or small. And so I want to tap into that to try to figure out what's going on when people continue to talk about miracles, even though they might not be religious. And then in particular, to focus on uh, a sort of political theology of the miraculous and to think about how thinking about the miracles in this broader context as being about ethics and politics and amazement, what that can tell us about a democratic public life that is open to continual transformation. Interesting. Well, I hope you'll consider coming back to chat about that one. I'd love that. This has been so fun. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed uh, chatting with you. Um, I really enjoyed the book. It was so uh, interesting to have a chance to chat with you about it in person and delve into some of these things a little bit more in detail. So yeah. And also thanks so much for uh, getting up so early for us. I know you're in Australia. I'm in Canada. So we had a bit of a time difference there to work around. (laughs) That's all right. Totally worth it. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Fantastic. Thanks so much. Thanks. Bye. I want to thank you for listening to New Books and Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with David Neuheiser about his book, Hope in a Secular Age, Deconstruction, Negative Theology, and the Future of Faith. If you'd like to find out more about David's publications, media contributions, or see his photography, check him out at dneuheiser.net. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review on iTunes, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. The New Books Network is a not-for-profit organization, so all the buzz you can help us generate goes a long way to supporting this work. I'm also interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on this podcast and the material we cover. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Lynn Land. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. Also, be sure to like the New Books in Secularism channel on Facebook and Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. In the meantime, I'll wish you an à la prochaine from Quebec until my next conversation about new books in secularism.